You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Good morning, Real Life. The Lord is putting the world back together one step at a time. All right, let me give you an example. At the beginning of this service, Tiger Woods was two shots off the lead with three holes to go. I'm just saying, I don't know what's happened since. I've restrained myself from checking my phone. We're in the middle of worship, everybody. So if somebody wants to give me a... Just kidding, don't do that. Hey, somebody's followed me up here today. Who are you and what are you doing here? I have followed you. My name's Emmy Salisbury. I am the youth pastor here and I'm going to crash Marty's sermon. We're going to have a conversation together? Yep. All right, fantastic. Yep. Yes, we are. Okay, so we are moving from our last sermon series, which was the Seven Mountains, into this new sermon series, which is a sermon from the mountain. <laughs> you see what I, you guys doing okay out there? I'm on a roll this morning. You guys are just like, mm, the summer blues. Now, we are talking about the sermon from the mountain. So um, if the last sermon series, we talked about these seven mountains, these seven areas, God is putting the world back together. And uh, he's putting the whole world back together. There's not a part of the world that he's not putting back together. And yet one maybe constructive way we could look at it is seven areas, seven spheres of influence. Some of us that are called to those areas very specifically, some of you are called to the mountain of art. Some of you are called to the mountain of government. Some of you are called to the mountain of church. Like we're all called to these different places. We all have to interact with these mountains. It's not like I don't get to interact with art. But we're all called to these different places. If that sermon series was about the what and the where uh, of God's working out in the world, like if that was the what and the where of the mission of God, this sermon series is about the how of the mission of God. Uh, another way to look at it is if, if that sermon series was about the work that we're called to do, corporately, individually, if that's about the work that we're called to do, this sermon series is about the people we're called to become. And in a sense, this sermon series may even be more important because if we do the work that God's called us to do, but never become the people that will we'll render all that work null and void. If we never become the people that God's calling us to become and do the work the way that God's invited us to do it, it, it will not, the ends won't justify the means in this case. You tracking with me? Fantastic. So as we go through this series, for those of you that are uh, book nerds, Bible nerds like me, and you want to read some more, it's just not enough on Sunday morning. I want more. I want to recommend a book to you. Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard should be a pretty safe book, re book recommendation. Uh, it's a, it is a hearty book. Emmy? It's, it's a, it is, whoo, it's thick, but it's easy to read, and it's just going to walk through the whole Sermon on the Mount. So if you want something that uh, a nice companion reading as we walk through the series. You could read that. It'd be, a, it'd be a fun read. I think I put that in your notes. So Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. Uh, I'm ready to just jump right in. You guys ready? Okay. We need to start at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which usually people would say Matthew 5. Incorrect. Matthew 4. <laughs> okay. We're a tough crowd this morning. All right. 423. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in the synagogues proclaiming the good news of the, okay, we've talked about this before, the gospel of kingdom. This is a big theme for us. We're not going to miss that here today. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. But Jesus goes out pronouncing not just with his words, but with his deeds and everything that he's doing, he's engaging and proclaiming kingdom. This is what's happening. They're healing every disease and sickness among the people. 
news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering with severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Now try to put yourself in this situation. Imagine yourself being in a whole room, not full of normal people with a couple of those people. Imagine yourself being a part of this movement where the room is full of the paralyzed, the ill, mentally, physically, the demon-possessed. This is what the kingdom is doing. So large crowds come from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan to follow him. Now, when we read that in our world, I think we think, okay, the Galilee, the Decapolis. No, 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 no. These are not people that hang out at the same barbecues. Mm, there you go. You guys are warming up. It's good. Like, the, the Galilee, that's good Orthodox God-fearing people. Okay, that's good Orthodox Jews, right? And then the Decapolis, that's not. That's not good Orthodox Jews. That's like pagan, Romans, Orthodox Jews won't be caught dead over there. And you got Jerusalem, you got Judea and the Galilee. Those are both God's people, but they can't stand each other. The Judeans and the Galileans, like the one group was like considered like the crazy charismatics and the other group was considered like the progressive ivory tower, hoity-toity academics. Like they didn't, like they, they like spit on the ground when they say each other's name. The, the Talmud says to even say the name Decapolis would make you unclean for seven days. These are not people that hang out together. And yet whatever Jesus is doing, all of these people are showing up to follow him. Try to imagine what this would be like. Let's keep moving. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, so Jesus sees what's happening, the kingdom of God's coming. He sees the kingdom of heaven starting to take shape. And he goes up on a mountainside and sits down. This is a rabbinic signal that the rabbi wants to teach something. Like if the rabbi goes and sits down, that's a rabbinical signal. I have something to say. Listen up. And he calls his disciples. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So who is Jesus teaching in this moment? His disciples. Jesus is prompted by the crowds, the text tells us. Seeing the crowds... Jesus calls his disciples to him and he says, okay. Now, according to Matthew, he says that he's been teaching. So this isn't like the first public words that Jesus has spoken. But according to Matthew, as Matthew tells the story, these are the first words of Jesus's teaching that we are getting from Jesus's mouth in the gospel of Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount. And he calls his disciples to him and he begins to teach them. And his, his theme is going to be the Beatitudes. He's gonna open up this teaching with a nine proclamations about different groups of people. The first one's gonna be this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is a kingdom of heaven. There's all kinds of things to pull apart there. Blessed, we can translate it happy, but in our American culture context, probably not the best translation. Uh, I like to think of God's favor. God's favor is on the poor in spirit. Theirs, and there, here's this word again, the kingdom of of heaven. Now we've talked about that here before, but it's a big thing to talk about. And so we want to talk about it again. So Emmy, how about you help us review kingdom? All right. So we have in your notes, the three parts that make up kingdom. We first have dominion. 
Like, this is why we love the games like Fortnite. We love to have dominion. Somebody has to be in charge. Somebody has to call out the shots, make the rules, and enforce them. So the first part that we have is dominion. The second part is the subjects. This is a little, we kind of get a little squirrely when we start talking about you're my subject. So for today's conversation, we're going to talk about community. These are the others that make up our kingdom because we can't have kingdom without people. Uh, I was joking with Marty last service. I'd like to try for like two days, but me too. Just I'd me. probably just you. And then just me by myself. I'd probably get pretty bored. Um, so we have to have community. Kingdom is made up of people and you guys are an amazing community to be a part of. Then we have the reign or the accomplished will. So we have whatever the person in authority says that this is my mission, this is what I want to have happen, and then we all, through his, his or her authority, we then, as subjects, community, others, walk that mission out. I like to kind of compare this to my home. My husband and I, we have dominion over our home. Um, it's four acres. Sometimes it has dominion over us, and I don't like that at all. But for the most part, we have dominion over it. We have amazing community. We gave birth to three amazing little people and they are awesome. But what we love the most is when they invite their community into our community and our community gets bigger. We love it when people come over. It just makes life fun. So then we have our accomplished will or our mission. So at home, the Salisbury home will be a place that we honor God, we love people, and we're generous. So that is our that's our mission that we have set over the people that walk into our home, our children, and for ourselves. So then we take this concept of dominion, subject, and, and accomplished will, and we say, this is what God's kingdom is like. We're going to set this up for today that God is overall, that we are the community, and we have a mission, and when we partner with him, kingdom comes. Uh, this would lead to uh, assumptions that we often want to make about kingdom, and We'll, we'll talk about us later, but let's talk about Jesus's world. Um, there was a theologian, his name is N.T. Wright, and uh, he's a scholar that has helped us really understand the theology of Jesus's world since we found the Dead Sea Scrolls and what we call a new perspective on Paul and all kinds of fun stuff. But he talked about kingdom theology. He said one of the things that they understood in Jesus's day was this, this the kingdom of God is wherever things are as God intends them to be, he said. Wherever things are as God intends them to be, that's his kingdom, that's his dominion and his accomplished will being enacted by the people in that kingdom. And so we, people 2,000 years ago, thought, well, that I can make a pretty logical deduction from looking at my surroundings. Wherever I find that the world isn't as God intends it to be, I should be able to just discern that that's not kingdom. And so the next step became, well, people's circumstances are dependent upon whether or not they're willing to live in kingdom. If they're not willing to live in kingdom, their circumstances become very poor. And so you look at people that are on the fringes or on the outside or in suffering or in struggle, and the assumption, dangerous assumption, was that, well, that person is suffering because they chose not to live in sync with kingdom. They're not, in, they're not observing kingdom citizenship, therefore their life is terrible. That group must be on the outside. What Jesus does when he sees all, imagine being the disciples and seeing people from the Decapolis show up. No, 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 those people are unclean. 
Those people, those people do not live according to the, the, to, the, to the way of God. Those people haven't done all the work of the Old Testament, building God's way, following Torah. Those people haven't done, they're not, no, 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 no. They're not, they're not in, they're on the, and Jesus calls them together and says, here's the first thing you need to understand. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make all these pronouncements about where God is already at work. You are assuming too much. Let me reverse your assumptions. And that is going to be the list of the Beatitudes. So Emmy, take us through this list and show us what I'm talking about. All right. We're going to upset the apple cart. You ready? All right. First one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit. The completely disqualified. The spiritual zeros. Sometimes... We just don't feel like we know the Bible well enough. I can't lead a care group. I don't know my Bible. I have nothing to offer. What God is saying here is, no, no, no. Here's the keys. Kingdom is yours. You may feel like you are completely not qualified for this. But my presence shows up in a mighty and a special way. And God is there. When I hear poor in spirit, I think about my year this year. This is not going to go down as one of, in the Solomon family, this will not go down as dad's, one of dad's better years. Like I've had better spiritual years. I know what it's like to feel like I've been riding a spiritual wave and like, yes, this is not one of those years. And yet this pronouncement of blessed are the poor in spirit would tell me that even, even though I know I'm not banging on all my spiritual cylinders, I still, have, I still have a role to play. I still have something that I'm called to and God's still gonna work through me as I work out this spiritual journey. Yep, and in spite of this last year of your life, God's kingdom was there. Yep. All right, let's keep moving on. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Unfortunately, mourning is just a part of life and I, I hate that. But sometimes we have these moments of just pure grief Grief over decision, grief of a, a lost job or dream job that just never happened. A teenage girl crying because her heart was broken for the first time and she just doesn't understand why she can't be loved. In these moments of this grief, it's not that God's presence was completely gone. He's saying, no. I'm here in this grief, in this moment. I am here. I want to comfort you. And sometimes it's because of the choices I made that I'm sad. God's presence is there. It's unique. His attention is so in tune to the cries of his children that he comes running, sprinting for you. God's kingdom is not absent from your grief. God is there too. Let's keep going. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I love when Aaron talks about meekness. He often will compare it to an oxen and a yoke. It's that the oxen has all the power in the world to bust out of that yoke, but it chooses to submit under the authority of that yoke. It is power under restraint. I know in my life, my meekness 
meant weakness. That's not the case. God is saying when we choose somebody else over our rights, over feeling powerful, the olive kingdom is theirs. God is in those moments where we choose to lay down for the sake of somebody else and honor and bless them. God is there too. Let's keep going. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hunger and thirsting. There seems to be a void there. If I had just worked harder, if I had just tried a little bit harder, I wouldn't have to hunger and thirst. It's when I've often said for us as well, this last year and a half has been really difficult. And what I've had to tell myself is that when God is my plan A, I don't need plan B. That when everything in me just wants God not to be happy, not to have the bills paid, not to be healthy, just when everything in me just is like, okay, Lord, you gotta show up. You are my plan A. He promises that we will be filled. If there's a hunger and a thirst there, it would mean that they don't have it. Right. If I'm hungry and thirsting for righteousness, I don't have righteousness. This would be that, this would be that season that many of you in the room might find yourselves in or know somebody else who is, that you know, this, is not, this is not their best year. This is not their best season. They wish it was, but they're struggling with whatever it could be. And, and Jesus says, they're not outside the bounds of kingdom. Kingdom's gonna show up there. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, next one. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Merciful. Uh, I've just really wrestled with mercy in general um, as we talked about this part. I really felt like God brought to me the saying, you reap what you sow. And in my mind, I always took it as a very negative spin of performance that I better be sowing good things so I can reap good things. And when I have been having to reap bad things, it's because I sowed bad things. And what I love about mercy is there's these two words that pop up in scriptures, but God. And when our but God show up, he's going to spin my circumstance because of his great mercy for me and go a different direction. And because he's a good God, it's usually a really awesome direction. I feel like when we hear the, you reap what you sow, we've often heard that as a threat. Yes. And what, what scriptures do with it, the only way scriptures use it is as, as an invitation. Like you're invited to reap something different. We always use it as like, well, you're going to reap what you're going to sow, so make sure you sow it good. This is, this is hey, how about you sow, in, in Corinthians, Paul will say, sow, sow generosity and you'll reap blessing. Like it's an invitation to sow something positive, do something not a threat to avoid doing that, which interestingly enough, I feel like there's two sides to these beatitudes. Uh, The first half of what we looked at was all about like passive, I'm poor in spirit, I'm mourning, I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Like this was a, this was a, and now all of a sudden I feel like 
the back half of the list is about, okay, I'm trying to actively engage kingdom, but as I, this is also not easy. Like I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to be merciful. This isn't blessed are those who are shown. This is blessed are the merciful. I'm trying to show mercy and this isn't going well. And, but God's saying yes. And in that work, Mm -hmm. kingdom shows up. Yep. Yeah. Okay. The next one, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. I love what Dallas Willard says in Divine Conspiracy. He compares the pure in heart to perfectionists. As I have come, I've been, God's working on me in my perfectionist tendencies, um, that as I strive, I really try to make everything look good. I want everything in my home to be good. I want my spiritual disciplines to be good. I want my thoughts to be good. I want my words I say to be good. I want my motives to be right. But what I do when I do that is I create, I create for myself a very plastic fake gospel. It doesn't leave a lot of room for God to move. And what I think he's saying here is in those imperfect moments, but we feel like everything is a mess. It's chaotic. This is not the plan I had. God is saying, I'm going to show up. I'm going to do something that even you couldn't have planned, contrived, and crafted. It's perfectly imperfect. God's going to show up. God is in the imperfection. My therapist and I have talked about these. Uh, you phrased it exactly as he did. My perfectionistic tendencies. Um, and uh, I've always had this assumption. I've worked with my whole life. The closer to perfect that I am and the closer to perfect that I produce, the closer to godliness it is. Obviously, because God is perfect, so the closer to perfect. And yet, what my therapist kept insisting was, actually, when it's less than perfect, that's where you give got a chance to show up. Like the cliches that we all carry around, like, it's the cracks where the light gets through. Um, and those kind of things. It's true. It's true. Like, I've, like he was trying to help me learn that actually when you fall short, if you don't fall short, everybody goes, yay, Marty. When you fall short, all of a sudden you have a chance for people to go, oh, man, yay, God. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a lot more of that taking place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. It's good. Yep. Good stuff. You're preaching now, Marty. All right, let's keep going. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Can I get a shout out from all the middle children in the room? Come on, stand with me. We are peacemakers. I'm not saying that oldest kids and youngest kids, you're not peacemakers too. As middle children, we have a little bit more of the responsibility or we have taken it to be the peacemakers in our home. Oh goodness, how's that working It's hard. It is so, so hard. And I don't know about you guys, but the more and more and more that I try to bring the broken back and to just try to tie up loose ends and to bring restoration, I get really tired and it doesn't work. What God is saying here is even in the midst of you trying your failures of trying, I'm working. This is not lost. 
God's kingdom shows up when we just can't get the peace. Peacemaking is not validated by its success rate. Right. Peacemaking is, is it's always holy, sacred work, mm-hmm. whether it works or not. Right. Regardless of the outcome. All right, let's keep going. We're going to keep going all the way through to the end of the the scripture verses here. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I thankfully don't think we quite understand Jesus' intended words. I hope we never do. Uh, I was recently blessed with the opportunity, and many of you contributed to send me to Turkey. It was an amazing trip. So thank you. Thank you for those of you who put financially and just prayerfully the thoughts and considerations for me to go. It was awesome. We stood in Heropolis, It was a town that Philip, who had been with Jesus, he knew Jesus' mission, and he was sent out to Heropolis, this town, its ruins, gorgeous ruins. He had seven daughters. The mission that they lived out was brought to completion when Philip was chained to the Domitian gate by rings in his Achilles, Then his seven daughters stood just out of arm's reach, severely abused, and then crucified. I could only imagine with every daughter that came up that people said, renounce your faith. Do it. You you could spare the rest of your kids if you just renounced your faith. the guts that those seven daughters had to say, Dad, don't you dare. What's going on right here in this moment is everything. The mission that we have lived for, it doesn't compare to this moment. Dad, don't you say a word. And then Philip was crucified as well. I stood at that gate and sobbed because the presence of God was still there. 2,000 years later, God's kingdom was still at work 2,000 years later. I cannot imagine what his presence and kingdom was like when Philip was there. Because of what happened It's not that God's presence was absent. It was everything. Family, listen to me. The Beatitudes, it's not a list of how to get God's blessing. It's not a list of moral codes that we have to strive to live by. It is a proclamation that regardless of any circumstance you guys find yourself in, God's kingdom is there. And it's working. Yeah. They, I, they had this tendency to think that God's kingdom was only where it looked like they would expect, like they would assume. 
I think today, 2,000 years later, I don't think we've learned a whole lot. I think that will always be a struggle of God's human people as we walk the path. I think we're always going to struggle with, well, God's kingdom shows up here where I expect it to, and it must not be present. And so Emmy and I were talking about that. We were both raised in a Christian subculture, Christian homes. It wasn't our parents' fault or anything. It's just the that culture breeds this subconscious assumption that you begin to make about who's in and who's out. And so to close, we were going to try to make this applicable to our own day and tell me some of the things that you grew up battling trying to to wrestle with. Sure. And unfortunately, this is, this is the baggage I put on. I'm not blaming my parents, the church, anything. I chose to put this on. So I looked at the single mom and I thought, why didn't her dad tell her that she was awesome, beautiful, worthy? Why couldn't she have made the decision to not be with a guy behind closed doors why couldn't she have loved herself more? What's, what's God going to do with that? Where was God's presence then? Why couldn't she have said no? And I looked at the unruly kid that showed up at youth group, and you think, have you ever had a spanking in your life? Because I will volunteer. Where are the parents? There's chaos everywhere you go. Surely God is not here. What is he going to do with you? I looked at the criminal. And I thought, go get a job. If you want something, go get money, work for it, and go pay for it. I looked at the addict. Being raised in dare. I don't know if you guys remember dare. Just say no. God's presence was not absent in those moments. And I unfortunately judged them for that. I can think after a couple decades in ministry, all the things that I've picked up, some of it might be perceived, some of it's very real. I know how many of you in the room, don't show your hands, rhetorical question. How many of you in the room have gone through divorce and feel like you carry this label, this stigma, this whatever it is that follows you around where you feel like people look at you and go, oh yeah, you're a little bit less than, you're a little bit on the margins, you're a little bit, I think today socio-politically, we do this all the time, socioeconomically. I think about the conversations that we have swirling about immigrants and refugees and those supporters and this worldview. And we're always pushing people to the fringes, assuming that they're somehow less than. And if they would only do this, if they would only do that, if they would only think this way, if they would only follow that set of rules, then they could experience the kingdom of God. And Jesus calls his followers, his disciples to him on the side of a mountainside and says, if you're going to take any mountain, you have to realize that I already beat you to the mountain. Like if you're going to take any mountain, when you get there, you're going to find I'm already there. And as you've looked at the mountain from a distance, you're like, I can already see the work that needs to be done. You get there and you realize God's already been doing all this work with people that are ready to show up. And we just always had these assumptions that, well, this is what kingdom looks like. And the Sermon on the Mount starts, it starts with, with, a, with a challenge to all those assumptions that we've made. So uh, we, need to, we need to wrap this up. So I'm going to invite our servers if they want to go back and get the bread and the juice ready for us. We're going to go to the Lord's table. If you're visiting with us today, we have an open Eucharist table. That means that if you want to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, your family, and you do that, just hold on to the bread and the juice and we'll take it here together. 
But as we do that, I don't want us to miss the implications of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is not pronounced to other people. Like if you're going to hold the bread and the juice today, if you're a follower of Jesus in covenant relationship with God and his people, like this is, this is a sermon that's spoken to us. It's a sermon where God says, you need to see the, I find it interesting that Jesus pronounces all these things. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the, and then what Jesus says is, blessed are you when people persecute you. It's all these people are blessed. And if you buy into this, this is not going to be easy. So prepare yourself for a world that says, that's not what God is like. And that's the invitation for us. So, Emmy, how about you start us off with our implications? All right, implication number one. Kingdom is not complete without those in the margins. What we have here is a, a list of human lasts through very individualistic, intimate encounters with heaven. They become divine firsts. This is a gospel that none of us, no one, in here, out there, anywhere, is beyond God's blessing. Which, which would lead to the second implication, which is this, that in fact, the kingdom does not have any margins. There, there are no margins in the kingdom, because there's nowhere that the kingdom hasn't been, there's nowhere that the kingdom won't go. So any margins that there might be are all just self-perceived. It's our own self-perception of what might be in the margins because there's nowhere that the kingdom won't show up. There's no circumstances the kingdom won't invade. There's no decisions that the kingdom can't overcome. I love the song that we sang this morning, for every fear there's an empty grave. Uh, that, what could be more true? There are no margins. There are no mistakes. There are no fears that the kingdom hasn't already beat them to, invaded, and invite them into this whole nother. It's not that they're outside. They're already Inside, there are no margins to the kingdom. It's more of a reality that we get to wake up to all around us. Mm -hmm. Implication number three. Each beatitude is an insistence that the kingdom is most present with those who look and feel most distant. What this is, is it helps us to invite those on the outside into the middle. In doing so, we become full. In my life, I've been challenged that in my kingdom, I put up gates rather than walls or fences. I was really struggling. I was wrestling before I left for Turkey. I've had a couple families leave the youth group, and they're amazing families, and I love them dearly. And I was just wrestling with, like, what, what am I doing wrong? Like, do I have to change everything about youth group so that they feel like it's a safe place or that, that they get to learn and really know on a deeper level. And Turkey happened. What I saw in Turkey were the places that kingdom showed up by the Timothys, the son of a single mom that was a complete social reject. We stood in Ephesus were the babies that were born, deformed. They just weren't thriving. They were tossed onto a hillside, left for dead. The slave traders and the brothel owners would come and pick over and take them. And then the Christians would go and they'd say, I want you, I want you, I want you. 
I will adopt you. You're mine. Then I saw the disciples, complete religious rejects. They were told they can't hack it in the religious system. Yet there's these groups of peoples, the Timothys, the Christians in Ephesus, the disciples. They were told they they don't measure up. But we're standing here today because of them. God's kingdom shows up regardless of our situation and our circumstances. And my youth group, we will be the biggest bunch of kingdom crashers that you have ever seen because God has done something so much bigger in the group of us and God's kingdom is going to show up. Watch. So uh, it leads to this last implication. All that leads to this. As Jesus followers, we leave here today knowing that the further we get from this building, the closer to kingdom we are. Like we, we, we start to pick up this subconscious assumption that we come here to get closer to God. But the mission of God isn't at work here, really. This is what we do to come and be reminded The worship that we engage in is all to remind us. It's not a mistake that it's six days out there and one day in here. It's this one day where we come together and be reminded that God's not at work in here nearly as much as he's at work out there. So you leave here knowing that the further away you get from this building, the closer to the work of kingdom that you become. As Jesus followers, we leave here today knowing the further we get from this building, the, and I love that with your, uh, your wrestling match with the youth group situation because we always assume that like, no, people have to be like, we have to be coming here. Like we have to be like pulling them in. And yet what we find is that God's at work all kinds of places. I have no idea what God will do in all these other situations because God already beat me out there long before I was able to, to get there. So I think about that as you hold the bread and the juice I think about these 12 guys that got together with Jesus on a hillside and Jesus went, you're going to have to see the world completely differently. And then I, I picture them three years later gathered around at the Lord's Supper and they still didn't get it because that very night they had argued about who was the greatest. But something happened. I don't know what it was. Something about the resurrected Christ changed these 12 guys and a lot of other men and women. People like Philip went to places like Heropolis. People like John became the pastor to Asia. People like James took over the church in Jerusalem. And they took this counterintuitive, subversive movement of Jesus and changed the course of human history. Something happened when they met the resurrected Christ that changed them deeply about how they saw the world and who was in and the scandal, the scandal of who was in and who could never be out. And so as you hold the bread and the juice, my prayer is that you too, you may have, you may have come in here on the heels of a horrible mistake. You may, have, you may have put up one of those Facebook posts that you need to go home and delete this very morning on the way in. What? Never mind. And you might partake of the body and blood today and leave here saying, oh, yeah. I have had my prescription changed. I see the world a little bit differently than I did when I came in here. That night, Jesus took a piece of bread. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. This is my body. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember Jesus this morning.
Later in that meal, Jesus took a cup. He blessed it. He passed it to them. He said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember the mission of Jesus. Father God, my prayer today is that uh, you would help remind us, remind us, remind us over and over and over again. It is so easy for us to lean into what we might call our human nature, our human assumptions, and to assume that there is some tribal identity, some group of people that you are more present with, and anybody who's not a part of our tribe is somehow lacking of your presence, lacking of your kingdom, lacking of your, would you remind us? That you, you are never far from people who cry. You're never far from those on the margins, on the outside. You're never far. In fact, that might be exactly the whole point of this whole gig and the very place where you're present. God, would you remind us that uh, we often like to make ourselves the center, the reference point for the kingdom of God. Would you remind us that we are, we are not the center and the reference point of the kingdom of God? But the kingdom of God is going to be found in places, the center, the focus, the work, the mission is going to be found in all kinds of places, ourselves included, but all of those others as well. Remind us of that this morning. Call us to places of confession and repentance. And as we, as we come there, as we worship today, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.